Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusaders. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. What's that on your head? I'm your host, Stella, and this is Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, Episode 16 for January, MMXI. Kimberly Rockmore has the night off. Episode 16 is brought to you by Swatty, a special brand of swaddling blankets produced by the makers of Snuggies. Swatty gives babies the feel of a womb without actually being in a womb. Swatty wraps a baby within a tight fabric burrito. Keep your baby happy and warm with a Swatty. And coming soon from the makers of Snuggies, Colties, the cultist robes that keep you warm while doing whatever you creepers do. Batgirl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. Examples of the prices you may encounter are Detective Comics number 412 from 1971 in very good condition for $12.60, or Detective Comics number 413 from the very same year in very good condition for $13.20 or fine condition for $20.60. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering discounted prices for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are March's Batgirl number 19 and Birds of Prey number 10, both for $2.69. So, if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Okay, so it has been a whirlwind of activity, you know, ever since getting off um, for break, the holiday break, that is. I hope that you all had a wonderful break. I apologize for not wishing you happy holidays holidays on the previous episode. I hope you all had a Merry Christmas and a great New Year. I did go to see Spider-Man the Musical Turn Off the Dark on Broadway on December 17th, which was three short performances before the unfortunate actor fell 20 feet into the pit. 
Um, I did rather enjoy the show. Uh, really, to sum it up, it is a visual spectacle. Uh, you just cannot imagine the sheer amount of stunts and just everything kind of assaulting your senses. If if you can imagine um, the pulley system that the cameras use gliding over the football fields that ESPN uses and everything, that's the actual system that these actors are attached uh, to. And you know, you've got Green Goblin on there and Spider-Man's fighting him, at one point actually riding on him as he soars through the air. You have Spider-Man weeping into the audience, actually landing in the orchestra. At one point, there was there was a Spider-Man right uh, near me, no less than two feet away. I could have touched him. I was around eight rows uh, from the actual stage in the orchestra. You have screens coming together and actually at one point showing you a five-minute film, which you wonder, you know, I came here to see a Broadway musical. Why am I watching TV? And just wonderful sets that really give the impression of something coming to life from a comic book. I know that people were pretty uh, weary about, uh, you know, these costumes, but they really give you a comic book feel and and I think you also have to take it with a grain of salt and also realize that Julie Tamor the director of this show she also did Lion King and she was sculpting a lot of the costumes for Spider-Man so I think you really have to look at it that way um, you can always read my full review on badgirltooracle.blogspot.com if you know, if you got the chance, you are in New York City. I would recommend uh, going to see it. Um, now, it was hard for me because kind of two of my lives were shaping against each other. I have experience in musical theater, and you know, I know Spider-Man, and both of those were kind of going up against each other. It is not the best musical. Um, you know, it doesn't have the greatest music. It doesn't have the best book which is, you know, the script and the actual lyrics. But I think that um, certainly it's better than others that have come out, and it was enjoyable, which entertainment factor is always something to keep in mind. As for the Spider-Man side, there were nods to um, specific parts of history. Um, at one point, you know, one of the actors, or, well... Emily Osborne, she just kind of references four scientists, and the scientists were Straczynski, Lee, Romita, and Ditko. And so, you know, I was the only one clapping at that point. No one else knew what was going on. And that really is, you have to think about that, because I think that this was made mainly for its entertainment factor, mainly because, well, people love the Spider-Man movies. Why not make a musical of it? And overall, you know, it's going to be one out of... I don't know, 50 or 100 people, that's going to be a comic book nerd like myself that will have, um, I guess, a relationship with the character, with the history, and would actually know what's going on. Everything else is, well, I really want to see Spider-Man on stage. So I think people were kind of knocking the fact that, is this making fun of people being geeks? Is this kind of belittling what we know? And I don't really think so. I think that Julie Taymor did what she thought... Uh, people would enjoy, and I think to a certain um, respect, it certainly does get to that point. Um, yeah, I mean, there is something missing on both the musical theater level as well as the Spider-Man level, but, I mean, when you go to see something like this, or even when you go to see something like Harry Potter or Twilight, you really have to separate yourself from whatever it should be connected to. If you're going to see this, separate it from the comics. It's not supposed to be exactly like the comics. They definitely have reference material. They're definitely pulling particular issues. Um, the Geek Chorus actually references particular issue numbers um but i mean just like harry potter when you go see harry potter you have to separate the movie from the books because there is such a drastic difference between the two so would i recommend this definitely is it going to win a tony perhaps for set design or costume design probably not for best musical or best music um but I guess we'll see. I could be surprised. But I would say go see it as soon as possible because um, I'd love to see it again. I've never seen a show in previews and then seen it again. It'd be awesome to, to see it again and actually compare it to the preview that I saw. But I don't know how long it's going to last. With all these kind of disasters that are happening, one of the actresses actually left. So 
you know, it would be interesting. And if you're wondering about technical issues, nobody fell, of course, in my show. But there were three minor technical issues. one point, they did stop the show for a few minutes uh, to get someone untangled or just to be sure that they were ready to go. But otherwise, I would definitely recommend that. So beyond that, that was December 17th. I did have plans to go to Utah to go snowboarding. And then there was a huge um, snowfall that happened uh, the airport that I was supposed to leave from. And it canceled the flight, so I could not go to Utah. But don't worry, I'll definitely be going in February. got my flight moved uh, for a little charge, actually, which was great. And then, yeah, just spent Christmas with uh, my family and New Year's with my family as well. And it was just nice to relax, you know, from the stress of school and everything. And I was just happy to be able to, you know, sit there and maybe just read or play PlayStation. Uh, so it was great. Okay, so there's no news today. I've, unfortunately, Kimberly Rockmore is out. Um, I'm pretty excited because she's agreed, though, to come on uh, at one point um hopefully this winter or potentially in the spring and kind of give her story you know how did i meet her where did she come from how did she get into this and so i'm excited about that i I hope others are too i know uh zayas most likely is he's a big fan um and there's no questions i didn't take questions today somebody asked you know are you going to take questions and no because i uh, just kind of introducing new segments and i want to see how they work together before i put back um the questions so want to just get a feel for time so i think after all that the ranting the raving <laughs> and then you know describing my holiday uh you know if you were terribly bored i apologize but i do hope that you all had a wonderful holiday or holidays as the case may be so let's just hop into the reviews and uh, get started with the fun of the new year 2011 so first up we have detective comics number 412 the head splitters it came out in june 1971 writer frank robbins and artist don heck also included in this issue is legacy of hate the quote that i pulled from the pair of issues of course this issue bleeds over uh... what now gal doesn't dig wigs when a recent socialite divorcee is mysteriously killed by something that cracks your head like an egg, Jim Gordon discusses the strange case with Barbara Gordon over breakfast. After Babs hints that she wishes she could have a stunning wig for her birthday bash, Gordon tells her to buy one on him. She soon becomes interested in a socialite wig maker named Vasily and goes to purchase a wig at the same time as a Tina Lansbury. Neither know that it was Vasily who was responsible for the death of the socialite divorcee. Vasily becomes interested in Lansbury because she is also a divorcee and makes a special wig for her that will constrict until she gives up a large sum of money. Unfortunately, both Babs and Tina order the same wig and they are mixed up, with Babs having possession of the constricting wig. When she wears it at night, the wig begins to squeeze her head, forcing her to call Vasily and ask for help. Not realizing it is Babs who has called, he demands $100,000 and tells her to come down immediately. Not wanting the daughter of the police commissioner to walk away alive, Vasily and his assistant fool Babs into thinking she was having a lucid dream and get her to leave, while planning on turning on the constricting wig while she is driving. Learning the truth, Babs attacks Vasily and his assistant as Batgirl, but before she can stop them, they put a wig over her head and set it to crush. The story is then continued in Detective Comics number 413, Squeeze Play. It came out in July 1971. Once again, writer Frank Robbins and artist Don Heck. Also included in this issue of Detective Comics is Freak Out at Phantom Hollow. So, continuing from the last issue, Batgirl is caught off guard and has a wig slapped on her head. However, it's the one that was given to Barbara Gordon, and Batgirl had already disarmed it. She manages to capture Vasily, but his assistant Wanda manages to escape. Tracing her to her next potential victim, by breaking a code on a mannequin head, she manages to defeat Wanda and turn her over to the police. Later, as Barbara Gordon, Bab shows off her new wig to her father and Bruce Wayne. Both tell her that they prefer her red hair, albeit Bruce does it in a bit more artfully manner. 
or a bit more artful manner. I guess that Babs feels a need for a makeover every two years. Why else would she have desired a wig? The last time Babs made a change in her appearance was Detective Comics number 384 in 1969. Now, there are two things that I find strange at the beginning of the story. First, we have a police commissioner discussing the details of a case to somebody not on the force. Sure, you know, it's Babs, but it really does not seem like this sort of situation uh, could be found in a police handbook. Secondly, Babs seems to be suffering from ADD in this issue with her attention quickly being diverted to her desire for a wig rather than the strangeness of this um, head crushed like an egg case. I kind of would have thought she would have put on her investigator hat right away. The story itself is a little strange, you know, the thought of being killed by a constricting wig, but I guess there really is a moral to the story. Beauty can kill. I didn't really think the fact that Babs was so easily swayed that she was dreaming fit her character. She seems really too smart to be duped like that. Luckily for her, she spots a case-solving clue, thinks ahead, and thinks quickly on her feet. It was also strange to me that there seems to be some role confusion between Vasily and Wanda. While one would think, just by looking at Vasily of course, that he's the leader, there were several times where Wanda is clearly taking the dominant role in the plan. She comes up with a way to confuse Babs so that she leaves the office, and it is on her own initiative that she goes after Tina at the very end of the issue. Also, if you're following along with your issues, you know, as I go through them, I ask you this question. Don't Wanda, the assistant, and the cleaner that uh, tries on the wig at the very beginning of the first issue and gets them all mixed up, do they not both look like men posing as women it's very very strange very masculine uh, features oh and let us not forget Bruce's clever sonnet Comet shake out your lock and let them flare across the startled heaven of my soul pluck out the hairpins Babs and let her roll don't be so stingy with your blooming hair Wow I didn't know Bruce cared so much, but I am glad to see that people prefer a red-headed heroine. I give this story 6 out of 10 bats. Another strange story, as shocking as it may seem, but not as intriguing as some of these strange stories in the past. Okay, when I come back, I will review Batgirl number 16 and Birds of Prey number 7. During the break, you will hear one of the options for Stephanie Brown's theme song, Emergency, by Paramore. I will be, I will be playing two of the candidates per episode, and then you can vote for which one you think is the best after I showcase all of the candidates. Stay tuned after the whole show, this whole episode here, for the second candidate of the episode. I'd like to dedicate this segment to my good friend Zayas, who actually got me thinking about Steph's theme song. This segment is therefore called Zayas' Radio Hour, or Stephanie Brown's Theme Song Hunt. Stay tuned, I will see you shortly.
Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that first candidate emergency by Paramore. I have to say Paramore is one of my favorite bands. I have seen them twice in concert. Very enjoyable. Um, I recommend uh, listening to them, giving them a try if you if you like kind of uh, I don't know if you would consider it rock pop or just rock, but I would definitely give it a try. Okay, so now we are, of course, in 2011. I guess technically this is 2010 still because these issues came out in December. So right now I think we're breaking some sort of uh, space continuum uh, rules. But anyways, Batgirl number 16, The Lesson, Grass Before the Sky, The Scythe, sorry, Part 2, writer Brian Q. Miller, Penciler, Dustin Nguyen, see I pronounced it correctly this time, Inker Derek Friedolfs, and Colorist Guy Major. Two quotes that I pulled out that I really loved, and it was only then that young Stephanie truly realized gravity would forever be her enemy. And my tolerance for ignorance is shockingly low today. And I have to say that that quote, once I read it, and it was kind of all in this turmoil of my life, boy, has a quote ever fit my life more than that quote. Okay, so when we last left Steph, she was being accused of murder by the Gotham PD. As Steph runs from rooftop to rooftop looking to Babs for guidance, she ends up distracting a helicopter pilot by blowing a raspberry and trust falling into a building. After finding out that the building is not structurally sound enough to hook a line, she uses her shoulder to break her fall, uh, her fall ouch, and picks herself up to find none other than Detective Nick standing in the building. Nick explains that he believes her innocence and will give her a head start from the police. Steph makes some awkward outside voice comments and weaves in the ricochet. Meanwhile, back at school with a not-so-incognito sling, Steph apologizes to Francisco for cutting out on the meeting and is surprised that Jordana is not mad anymore. It's because she has her own personal picket against Batgirl. Gee, this reminds me of Detective Comics 405 through 406 with those hippie protesters. Anyway, at Firewall, Babs tells Steph of trace radiation from a unique isotope. This was found at the scene of Newton's murder, and it appears that the blood was placed on Batgirl's battering after the estimated time of death. Steph decides to pursue the lead to an until recently abandoned warehouse, but before she leaves has a heart-to-heart -heart with Babs. As Steph is on her mission, Proxy, a.k.a. Wendy Harris, is attempting to rebuild Newton's flash drive from mere fragments of information. After getting caught by the police and making unsavory wheelchair comments, Wendy inadvertently discovers something that could help the case. Video surveillance. Batgirl fights some snuggy-wearing cultist members, gets cleared of the murder charges, and gets hit in the face? Say what? It looks like the Reapers have a speedster on their side. And speaking of the Reapers, we see them at their hideout discussing Batgirl. Looks like we've got a new member of Steph's rogues gallery. Once, I, once again, you know, however shocking this may be, I find that this was an enjoyable issue. However, there were some points which were confusing or made it seem to me that I had missed something while reading. For example, when Batgirl falls through the building, Nick literally appears out of nowhere. It was almost a deus ex machina. Nick explains that he believes she is innocent, but not why. Now, if you recall, Nick acted rather strangely in the previous issue. The mystery of Nick is deepening, but I'm starting to get antsy. Then we have Proxy talking to Marvin, i.e. herself. What exactly is going on here? This is only less creepy than Calculator talking to the decomposed potty of Marvin. Has she had an emotional break? Should she really have the power that she has on the Team Batgirl? Then we have Stephanie's eyepieces, which seem to have come out of nowhere and were not really explained. They were there for two panels and then gone. Now, I assume they were there to help her see the, radi the radiation trail that Babs was talking about, but still, explanations are always welcome. Finally, the speedster at the end makes some cryptic remarks. It's like the lady said, uh, what lady? Is there a girl in the group of Reapers? Is a speedster a girl? Or is he referencing something that Steph said and then turning it around to fit his, um, his point? And, you know, what does blink and you'll miss her even mean? Kind of confusing there. 
Besides those less well-developed moments, the book still retains its heart and its humor. I always enjoy the awkward comments that come out of Steph's mouth in the company of Nick. I also really enjoyed the conversation between Babs and Steph concerning acceptance. I like that Miller delves into this subject. It's one thing to be accepted by the Bat family, but an entirely other thing to be accepted by the public and the police force. Miller makes the pain of not being accepted much more real than Spider-Man's constant battles with it ever did. We see how much Steph does not want to lose Batgirl, and Babs lets her know that the fight is always more, or always about more, than just acceptance. Acceptance also takes on another meeting in terms of how Wendy fits in with the team. Not only is she disgruntled, but Babs does not seem to be thrilled with how she handled her side of the job. We are pushing forwards in the life of Batgirl, always. You, deeper into Steph's life, deeper into Team Batgirl, and adding more rows along the way. Keep it coming. 8.5 out of 10 bats this time. It was a little lower. Not as strong as previous issues, but I think it does hold on to many of its strengths and, and many of the reasons why we, or we here at Batgirl to Oracle, and all of you listeners out there, hopefully, love um, Batgirl as well. Next up, we have Birds of Prey number 7, The Death of Oracle, Part 1, The Cape and the Cadaver. Writer, Gail Simone. Penciler, Ardian Siaf. Inkers, Vicente Cifuentes. And J.P. Mayer. And colors, Nerofino. When the issue opens, Collector is musing about Gotham City and what makes it so special to the baddies before taking a meeting with Savant. Savant appears to be a double agent, willing to bring down Oracle even for a guy that he hates. As all of this is going on, Barbara Gordon, a.k.a. Oracle, finds herself in a dark alley with a bunch of creepers. Three out of the five are taken down before Batman, Bruce Wayne Batman, arrives and gets rid of the rest. Batman and Babs have an interesting conversation before we make the strangest segue into a strip club, with the birds enjoying themselves and tipping well, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It is Dove's birthday, and she's the only one that seems uncomfortable. She defends Hawk to Dinah while we see Hawk throw his birthday gift to Dove in the trash and walk away from the club entrance. We then find ourselves on a rooftop garden with Calculator, checking to see if a creepy lady akin to Typhoid Mary has a talent that she boasts. Say hello to Mortis, which, as an aside, means death in Latin, but it's the uh, the genitive singular, it's Mors Mortis, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Back to Babs and Bruce, now walking through one of four tunnel entrances to Core Tower. Babs shows Bruce a list of 13 names. The list remains unexplained, but I think that they are people that Babs feels are in danger due to their connection with her. Bruce tells Barbara that once the fortress is complete, she could, and probably should, stand down. Of course he knows her better than that. Babs explains that tonight, Oracle will die. Bum, bum, bum. Meanwhile, Savant enters Cord Tower. It now appears that he is a triple agent. While Bruce is uneasy about the partnership, Babs asks him to trust her. Finally, back at the strip club, Don passes out right when the action begins. Er, I, I, I mean, mammoth, along with some other villains, appear ready to take out the birds. It's that type of action. Yeah. Dinah tells Helena to leave in order to protect her identity. Dove all of a sudden appears in her costume, though still in a drunken stupor. And if the girls did not seem to be in a pickle right now, and I'm not talking about the strippers, they certainly are when Mortis appears demanding Oracle. Here we are! The death of Oracle. As is apparent after this issue, she's not literally going to die. Babs explains to Bruce that there are too many people who know that she's Oracle, and that knowledge could get her loved ones killed. The identity of Oracle, therefore, needs to die. You know, after nearly 25 years of Oracle, this could really be a significant moment in the character's history. And boy, am I glad to be here with you to share that moment. I'm quite glad that we have moved past the previous arc and into some better territory. Overall, I thought that this issue was definitely more solid than we have seen in the past couple. 
However, there were still, or I suppose there was still, almost too much going on at once. There were at least three different stories going on with certain characters flitting in and out of one or more of them. Some moments that had me scratching my head were, well, calculator, didn't we leave him completely discombobulated due to Wendy frying his brain? How did he come back? Am I missing something completely or misremembering? I also wonder how Dove all of a sudden appeared in her outfit. Doesn't she have to be conscious in order to make it appear? And then finally, we have this list of 13 names. You know, this could have been better explained as I went through probably three iterations of ideas before I finally settled, or settled on the one that I gave. I really enjoyed Oracle's fight in the alleyway, not only because of her voiceover concerning the week, but also because it was almost as if she was purposely going there for a fight. I wondered why she was so excited to see Batman, of course, you know, after I figured out that it was uh, not Dick, and then wondered why Bruce was so eager to give her a hug. Boy, if I didn't know any better, and, and uh, Bertone, you may be thinking the same way, who knows. It was also interesting to hear Don talk about Hank. It was almost as if she were not only defending him to Dinah, but Gail Simone was right there defending the character to us, the readers. There certainly is pathos in this little speech, and it almost made me feel bad for the character, but, you know, I'm still waiting to see if he's, if he's worthwhile. Finally, I feel it my civic duty to talk about the stripper scene. Now, some of you may remember me talking about Penguin's, quote, wet dream, end quote, of the birds with some distaste. And you know, while I may enjoy the menfolk, I would have to say that there was a bit too much of, the, of a good thing there uh, with the club scenes, yes. The scenes seem strange and forced and really chafing against the, wow, chafing, it's kind of a pun, chafing against the, character, the characterizations that we know already. You know, I could definitely see Dinah and Zinda parting it up, but just last issue, I praised Helena for falling to her knees, and here she is. And poor Dawn, you know, I could certainly see myself in this position, um, just, I don't know, conked out after one drink and just feeling utterly uh, uncomfortable. That That's definitely me right there. But, you know, I overall, I can't forget the, the art uh, as this is Siaf's first issue, um, I did enjoy the art, and you know I wouldn't describe it as spectacular, but boy, would I love to see an artist hold on for more than just four issues. But by far, the greatest part of the art was the cover by Art Germ, a friend to us Batgirl lovers. I'd give this also, equal to Batgirl, probably for the first time, 8.5 out of 10 birds. Intriguing, and certainly opening up what could be a momentous event for Barbara Gordon's character. Okay, I am pleased to introduce a new segment called Babs in the Tube. Now this is the first in the new series that will occur each episode. I will go through one appearance of Barbara Gordon, either on TV or in a movie, devoting probably more time to the summary than an actual review. The review will really just be bullet points, emphasizing certain moments that I liked or found odd, etc. And I will try, I, I think it should be easier, uh, <laughs> to go through all these media appearances in chronological order, starting with the 1966 Batman series. So without further ado, the very first Babs in the Tube, episode 95 from the 1966 Batman, season 3, episode 1, Enter Batgirl, Exit Penguin, came out, or as, you know, first aired September 14th, 1967, starring Adam West as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Burt Ward as Dick Grayson slash Robin, Burgess Meredith as the Penguin, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Jim Gordon, and Yvonne Craig as Barbara Gordon, Batgirl. Now this is Batgirl's first appearance, aside from, of course, an unaired pilot. Uh, the quote that I pulled out, Batgirl, 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 
bats. I'm surrounded by bats. And of course, some of you hardcore listeners that have been with me since the beginning will recognize that as being from, sadly, the intro that I had <laughs> at the very beginning before my hard drive uh, ate it. Okay, Batman and Robin, having returned to the Batcave from declawing Catwoman once again, promptly ascend to Wayne Manor as Bruce Wayne and Richard Grayson, who come calling to take Chief O'Hara, Commissioner Gordon, and his daughter Barbara to the opera. Unfortunately, Barbara, in an elevator, is kidnapped by the Penguin with the aim of forcing her to marry him. The Penguin tells the astonished group by phone that they should read the society section of next day's newspaper. When they do, they discover the announcement of a forthcoming wedding between Barbara and the Penguin, and they desperately try to locate the Penguin's hideout. Penguin's henchmen, in search of a minister to perform the ceremony, fall upon the Reverend Hodslet and Alfred. The quick-thinking butler pretends that he is the Reverend and leaves with the thugs. Bruce and Dick become the dynamic duo and locate Penguin's hideout in a vacant apartment next door to Barbara's. Wow, it isn't that a coincidence. Believing Alfred to be a man of the cloth, she swears him to secrecy and then walks ever so precariously along the ledge to her apartment. She enters her bedroom, activates a secret panel, and changes into bum 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 ba Batgirl. Meanwhile, Batman and Robin burst into the apartment, which they discover holds a befuddled Alfred Pennyworth and a wedding dress stuffed with pillows. Just as the Penguin and his Finks confront the dynamic duo, Batgirl arrives to help overcome Penguin and his men. Batman and Robin are definitely taken aback by the arrival of this new crime fightress. Meanwhile, Alfred, who had been listening at the locked door, has guessed Batgirl's secret identity. As the Caped Crusader and the Boy Wonder try to rescue Alfred from the locked do- room, Batgirl returns to the apartment where, as Barbara, she had been held. However, the Penguin regains consciousness and gasses the duo. Then, after bagging them, along with Alfred and the wedding dress, stuffed with pillows, he tosses them off the terrace in his waiting truck. How rude. Which drives them to Penguin's auxiliary hideout. Barbara Gordon spots Penguin making his escape in the truck, transforms once again into Batgirl, and pursues the truck to the hideout on her Batgirl cycle, and arrives in time to get a chance to show her medal when she saves the caped crusader and the boy wonder from being dunked in a vat of boiling water and being steamed alive. As the dynamic duo precipitates a melee with the Penguin and his henchmen, Batgirl confronts Alfred for deceiving her. Alfred merely informs her that he didn't mean to lie, for he chose to take the minister's place to protect him. Apologizing and forgiving him, Batgirl makes him promise not to reveal her true identity. Alfred agrees, and she quickly changes into the wedding dress so Batman will not become suspicious of her identity. After bagging the penguin and his sphinx, Batman and Robin turn to thank Batgirl for her help, but she is nowhere to be found. After Bruce Wayne donates a sizable fund to a police charity, Gordon is shocked by a telephone call from the Riddler. And this, of course, sets up the next episode. Okay, so some points that I saw when I was watching this. Babs getting set up with Bruce. Oh boy, WWBS, what would Bertoni say? I I would actually like to hear what he would say on this. Uh, We discuss this all the time, especially when it comes to the animated series and what happened with that uh, awkward relationship. Who knows if this was actually the inspiration for the Babs-Bruce relationship in some of those later animated episodes. Now, Priscilla, um, another librarian, answers a phone, okay, and, and Barbara's standing right there, okay, this is kind of one of those funny scenes there, and she says, oh, hello, Commissioner Gordon, okay, remember, Barbara's standing right there. She then hands the phone to Barbara and says, it's your father. I mean, wouldn't she have guessed that from the fact that she answered and said, Hello, Commissioner Gordon, but I don't know, maybe it's the 60s, we don't have to explain it? Who knows? I love the fact that Penguin's henchmen actually have a shirt saying, Henchmen. And then, of course, Alfred has a belt, buckle, bat call, signal. That's what we call alliteration in AP Virgil, friends. Ah, yes. And how are four people stuffed in a purple sack? 
and thrown out of a window down several floors onto a truck not dead okay okay so the truck bed was lined with mattresses but really what they're not dead ah yes the bat cycles or the batgirl cycle uh... its first appearance was awesome pretty exciting and then alfred gets in a fist fight i would have to say that he definitely has some muhammad ali skills and you know, as this huge fight goes on, Batgirl and Alfred have, strange, a calm conversation about her secret identity. Apparently, they have no idea that people are getting whiff, bam, and powed all around them. I loved the look on Alfred's face when Bab says, I'm sorry I'm so helpless. It, it was just a classic kind of uh, woodchuck or groundhog, whatever that thing is. Da 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 da. And, and its eyes open wider. I'm sure you people have seen this on YouTube, but it is just a wonderful look. And why does Bruce Wayne have the epithet millionaire attached? It's not just Bruce Wayne. It's millionaire Bruce Wayne whenever we talk about him. Hey, maybe I should call millionaire Bruce Wayne to go out for a cheeseburger. Oh, dear. My tire's flat. Perhaps I should call millionaire Bruce Wayne. I'm, I, I don't understand. The episode was fun, and it definitely had a lot of great moments. Of course, there are always the strange, laughable moments as well. 8 out of 10 bats. Great first media appearance of Barbara Gordon. So that is it for the meat. The meat and potatoes of this episode. Uh, to finish up, going to give my literary recommendation... The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo by Stigel Larson. And, you know, I write show notes, you know, just so I'm prepared and, and I know what I'm going to discuss. And I just kind of left it blank besides the title and the author because it is just kind of a tough book to explain. Basically, it starts off with this journalist and he had just gotten sued by libel. And a rich guy ends up coming to him and asks him to solve a 40-year-old disappearance, which could also be a murder. And then on the other side, we have a brilliant hacker uh, slash investigator, uh, the main character, Elizabeth Salander. And she ends up also working on this case. Um, it's suspenseful. It's mysterious. Um, it's certainly... I don't know, graphic but and disturbing at, at some points. Um, to give you a bit of background on the author, Stig Larson, he actually wrote the manuscripts for all three of these. We have the girl with the dragon tattoo, the girl who played with fire, and then the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. He writ, wrote all of those, and then he died, and then they were published posthumously, which means after the death. Um, and... Actually, when he was younger, he witnessed a gang rape of a girl, and uh, he never forgave himself for not intervening. And so this this series um, really, and this book initially really attacks um, sexual assault and sexual abuse of women. Um, the main mystery revolves around something very similar, and then Lisbeth, which we don't know completely her past uh, at this point. I don't, anyways. Um, but she, I think she's been sexually assaulted somehow, and then, of course, in the book, she is as well. So it's, it's intense. Um, it's a slower read, as in you have to slow down and, and um, actually kind of absorb everything that's going on. I would not recommend it to people under 17. I think I've done this before. Um, I actually have a student, a freshman that's reading this and a little concerned, but you know, every day I check in and, and I want to see what she's on. Uh, she hasn't hit the first bad moment, so when that happens, I think uh, we'll see. But I definitely do recommend I thought it was a great, great book. Um, I have not seen the movie yet. I'm waiting uh, until I go to Utah to visit a friend because the friend actually gave me this book for my birthday. So definitely recommend it. Um, if you like mysteries, um, I would, you know, weed. Or I, if you like mysteries, I think that you'll like this. But, of course, it's powerful in other aspects, like I said. Um, if you're a bit squeamish, I think, about, and really who isn't, um, you know, assaults and everything. It's just really powerful that way. Um, and, and, and rather unsettling as well. But 
understanding, I think, the author's background, I can definitely see how this happened. So after that, I'm done. I feel like this is a long episode, but I guess we'll see. Uh, so, of course, send any questions or comments to me, you know, backgirl to oracle at gmail.com. I'll hopefully have a question thread, thank you, that's the correct term, up for next month. Get back into the swing of things. Uh, continue to sign, obviously, the petition. Can't say it enough times. We have 687 signatures right now, so... I would love to see this movie come out in the next two years. It would be so great. Um, of course, you know, but I will repeat it again. It is www.gopetition.com slash petitions slash batgirl-year-one.html. Once again, thanks to milehighcomics.com for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon pad- podcast. Thanks also to TV.com for the episode summary for Enter Batgirl, Exit Penguin. Remember to stay tuned after the show, which will be in 30 seconds, uh, to hear another candidate for Steph's theme song, I Will Not Bow by Breaking Benjamin. A bit heavier, but um, a good band uh, when they're not cursing, Um, and I think a good theme as well. So until next time, I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed these new segments, Zias' Radio Hour, and of course, Babs in the Tube. Until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?